0: It's good to be saved. You know, if you're saved, you can, you can take preaching. If it's the truth, you can take it. It doesn't matter you know, how the preacher presents it. You can take truth if you're saved. you got the Spirit of God in you, and the same Spirit that, that, uh, that's inside of you is the same Spirit that wrote the Bible. And so, uh, anyhow, we can take preaching. All right, let's go ahead and take our Bibles here this morning, if you will, and let's turn to um, 1 Timothy chapter number 3. 1 Timothy chapter number 3. I want to read about two or three verses for my text. And uh, somebody must think I got bad breath. I got a mint up here, so uh, I'll save that till after the service. <laughs> some, sometimes people leave you hints. You know that? I remember one time I come into church and, uh, and uh, so, you know, I, the, the previous Sunday I'd i been mowing and I got sunburnt pretty bad. So, uh, you know, my face was all red and, you know, I was just burnt. And so the following Sunday I come in and somebody had some sunscreen on the pulpit. <laughs> I said, well, I got sunscreen. It's just a matter of using it. So they probably wasted their money. (laughs) I'm not big on rubbing stuff like that on my face when I go out to to work and stuff. Just it's not the way I am. All right. If you're at 1 Timothy chapter number three, say amen. All right. 1 Timothy chapter three, we're going to pick it up in verse number 14. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter three in verse number 14, these things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory." Now, here the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, young Timothy. And uh, Timothy is the pastor of the local church at Ephesus. And Paul is the older preacher and Timothy is the younger preacher and Paul has kind of taken Timothy under his wing over the years and he's, he's tried to teach him and guide him and lead him and help him and so now that he's pastoring a church now we come across first and second Timothy which is called the pastoral epistles and so these are things and charges that, 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 that Paul is charging Timothy and the local church there with some of these things. Now, the Bible talks about Timothy being uh, Paul's son. We read back over in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse number 2. The Bible says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. So a lot of people come along and they want to say that Timothy was Paul's biological son. But that's not true. That's not right. Uh, the, the Bible's clear that Paul is not Timothy's son. And I'll show you that in just a second. But back over in First Timothy chapter number 1 and verse number 2, he says unto Timothy my own son in the faith. So it's not his biological son, it's his son in the faith. And so he tells us that right there. But then also in Acts chapter number 16, I'll hurry up and run over there and and read this one to you. In Acts chapter number 16, it makes it abundantly clear that Timothy is not Paul's biological son. In Acts chapter 16 and verse number 1, the Bible said, Then came he to Derby and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus. Now that's Timothy. Timotheus is Timothy. So his name was Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess. So Timothy's mom was a Jew. But now listen to the rest of it. It says, and believed. so she was a saved Jew. But his father was a Greek. His father was a Gentile. So Paul could not have possibly been Timothy's father and Timothy couldn't have possibly been Paul's son biologically because Paul is a Jew and Timothy's father was a Greek. He was a Gentile. So the Bible makes it very clear that it's the, it was his son in the faith is what that is. And Paul makes it clear in other passages too that, that Timothy was Paul's brother in Christ over in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 1 and Philemon 1 verse 1 and Hebrews 13 and verse 23. Now, Paul probably, he won Timothy to the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's probably why he calls him his son. But Paul was the elder preacher trying to help the younger preacher. Now, just because a man is older doesn't make him smarter, right? Just because a man is older doesn't make him wiser. We understand that and we get that. Uh, Paul warned Timothy about folks in 1 Timothy chapter number 4 and he says in verse number 12, Let no man despise thy youth. Here's young Timothy. He comes along and he takes the church at Ephesus. And then there could be others that come along and they look down their nose and they don't want to take his preaching and take his teaching. Why? Because they're older than him. So they think that because Timothy is young, he don't know much, so therefore they don't have to listen to him. But according to the Bible, Timothy is their pastor and they are to listen to him according to the Bible. As long as he's preaching that book, they're supposed to listen to him. But ladies and gentlemen, when it comes to someone that has age and they have some experience and they appear to be faithfully serving the Lord, I think it would be smart on our part to take some notes from that person. I mean, if somebody's got some experience and they've got some age on them, they've probably been through some things, so you can take some notes. But I remember in years ago, in years past, I remember we've had people to come into the church and leave the church and come to the church and leave the church. And I could remember folks coming, in. I remember specifically this one fellow. Years ago, he come to the church and, and you couldn't teach him anything. You couldn't preach to him anything. He already knew it all. And you wasn't going to tell him anything. I mean, I, you know, you would tell him, you know, just try to have some conversation with him. And it was all of a sudden like taking offense to it. You know, and he knew it all. I know that. I understand that. I get that. And and you know how I am. I'm just meek and lowly Tony Miller. I'm just as soft as a teddy bear, right? And so nobody should get offended at me. <laughs> but anyway, you know, I talked to him and tried to tried to help him along the way, but he wasn't taking it. He wasn't taking any advice. And uh, it was kind of like talking to that wall right there. You know, well, and I'd have to apologize to that wall for saying that. I mean, that's an understatement. I mean, there's just some people that doesn't want to take guidance because they've got an arrogant spirit. And, and, and you know, they, they just constantly, they know it all. But if you know it all, then nobody can teach you anything. And therefore, you're not going to be used of God. But very rarely will a person that knows, knows it all, be used of God. You see, it's not a race to see where uh, who can learn the most the fastest. It's about me being your pastor and trying to impart some biblical truth to you to try to help you along the way. That's what I'm trying to do. I mean, my job here is not to try to help you physically, like, you know, your, your health and your wealth and things like that. My job is to try to help you spiritually, to impart something spiritually to you. But it's people like that that you'll never be able to pastor. It's people like that that you'll be, never be able to help because they always have this arrogant, cocky attitude that, that nobody can help them. Now, I believe there's many people like that that's sitting in churches all across the country that are sitting on the bench. They're sitting on the sideline Because a younger preacher cannot teach them anything. But you know, I've noticed over the past couple of years uh, with you folks, you're not like that. You know, I'm 46 and some of you are 70, 80, and 90 years old, and you're not like that. And I appreciate that about you. I'm glad that many of you, and most of you, as far as I know, you have a teachable spirit. And that makes it a lot easier to be your pastor. Now in this case, Paul was the elder and Timothy was the younger Paul was the experienced and Timothy was the inexperienced to the point that Paul was even letting Timothy know but don't let anybody despise your youth. You know, youth has its advantages as well. You know, as you get older, you know, age has its advantages. Supposedly, we're supposed to get a little smarter and wiser. We've been through some things. Maybe we've got a little more patience as we get older because we went through those things the right way. But you know, when you're younger, you got energy and you got some zeal. You know, these little folks that run around here and we always sit back and we say, man, I'd like to have just, you know, an ounce of their energy. So there is some benefit to being younger and things like that, but there's also some benefit that I've noticed, uh, being, that's why when I preached in a nursing home, I'd go after the services and I'd typically sit in a room for about 30 minutes and I would, I would kind of cherry pick which room each week that I would sit in and I'd go and I'd just listen. And, and I just talked to them and they'd, you know, they'd love to talk because they don't have nobody to talk to. So they'd just talk and talk and talk and you could sit there for two hours and they'll just talk to you. But I'd typically spend about 30 minutes and I'd talk to the older folks and, and I'd listen to what they'd been through and I tried to learn and glean some things from that. Being a young person, being a young preacher, I understood that I needed to listen to some folks. Maybe what they were saying at the time wouldn't help me. It wouldn't benefit me, but maybe somewhere down the road it would. And so it's good for a young person to learn to listen. And Timothy no doubt listened to what Paul had to say and he learned a lot from the Apostle Paul because he, was a, he had a teachable spirit and he was, he was willing to listen. Um, as a matter of fact, we learn in the scriptures that Timothy sat under Paul's ministry for 10 years before he even took a church. And so there's dangers in somebody that, that just surrenders to the call to preach and takes a church just like that. There's a danger in that. Uh, you know, maybe you need to sit under another pastor and listen to him. Let him teach to you. Let him preach to you. Let him help your family before you decide to take a church. Because if you're not careful, you'll take a church and you'll run on zeal at first. But after about a year, then that zeal is gone. And the problems of the people have wore on you and wore you down to the point where you're ready to throw in the towel and give up. And so you can get to that place. So it's good to sit under a good seasoned preacher for a while and learn some things before you go off on your own. And even though Timothy was pastoring, notice that Paul is still teaching him. I mean, at this point right here, he's pastoring the church at Ephesus and Paul is writing these things and he's trying to teach him some things. And you don't want to know what that teaches me personally? That teaches me that, that, you know, that I don't know it all just because I'm the pastor. (laughs) There are some preachers, because they become the pastor, they already know it all. That's not me whatsoever. You know, I always keep the attitude that I know less today than I did when I first started pastoring. And you keep that kind of attitude, and that'll benefit you along the way for sure, if you're a pastor or whatever you do for that matter. But I hope that maybe today I know just a little more than I did a year ago I hope that maybe I know a little more 10 years ago than I did today. I hope that I've learned as I've went along a little bit. I mean, in the past 20 years, if you've pastored for 20 years, you've bound to learn a little something along the way, you know. And so I think that I have learned some things. But notice in verse number 15. Paul here he's given Timothy, Pastor Timothy some guidance on the New Testament church. He says in verse 15, "But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now I want to be honest with you up front this morning that verse number fifteen that's not talking about a building. when he says, In the house of God he's not talking about a bi- he's not talking about these four or six or however many walls, seven walls there are in here. He's talking about the people. That's who the house of God is. That's who he's talking about. He said, which is the pillar, excuse me, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so he's talking about the house of God and the fact that it's dealing with people. So Paul wants Timothy to know how to deal with the people, the church, save people. And we ought to learn how to deal with people. You know, if you've been in church very long, you know that you can't just go up to people and talk to them rudely and be unkind and things like that. You're a child of God. We're Christians and we treat people with with some respect and we treat them with dignity and things like that because they're our brother and sister in Christ. And so he's going to lay some things out in 1 and 2 Timothy that he's going to talk to them About how Timothy ought to behave himself in the house of God. Now, he's talking about the house of God here, and a lot of people are more concerned about the house of God when we ought to be more concerned about the God of the house. Amen? That'll preach right there. Listen, I thank God for our church building, don't you? As a matter of fact, I believe it's one of the nicest buildings around in the area. I really do. I believe that. I believe it's, it's top-notch first class, but when it comes down to it, the most important thing is not the house of God, but it's the God of the house. It's your relationship with Jesus Christ. Are you serving Him? Are you living for Him? Do you pray? Do you confess your sins? Do you read your Bible? Are you witnessing? Are you inviting people to church? It's your personal relationship with Jesus Christ that's the most important thing. You can go to the most beautiful building in Mercer County, and it do you no good for your relationship with Jesus Christ? You see, it's more important to have a better relationship with Jesus Christ nowadays. You come to church, and we know how it is, don't we? We know how to act. We know how to talk. We can make people think we're right with God when we could be totally out of the will of God. Because after all, you know, we can still read our Bible. We can still pray and and be wrong with God. Did you know that? Did you know that you can sit in a church pew and just be as wrong with God as as? Anything else? I mean, you could, you know, because after all, you can pray and be, be wrong with God. I mean, you're sitting at a red light, you know, God help me, I'm late for work. You, know, you can pray and still be wrong with God. You, know, you can have sick children, God please heal my children, and still be wrong with God. Just because you pray doesn't mean you're right with God. The most important thing is not the house of God, but it's the God of the house. And I've said that from day one, from the get-go, that the most important thing in your life and in my life is our relationship with Jesus Christ and nothing else, it all fails or pales in comparison when it comes to Jesus Christ. You ought to keep your relationship close to the Lord. And so he says, how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. So the house of God, well, that's where you're going to find truth at. You know, when you get around the saved people, that's where truth ought to be. He says the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, that's people. We're the pillar and ground of the truth, right? That's that's according to the passage right there. So, what I want to do is, I want to give you some things here this morning. We're going to start a series here about in the house of God. But what we're going to do is, I want to give you some things about this organization. And let me say this the church is more than just an organization, the church is an organism, it's living it 's not just a building, but the church is the people we 've got blood and flowing through our veins we 're alive You know what that again we 've got something spiritually that connects us to Jesus Christ that makes us spiritual spiritually alive and so we 're going to talk about the House of God as far as how the organization of it goes. What is an organization? It's it's uh, organized. It's order. And everything ought to be done in orderly and decent at the house of God. And so we're going to mention some things here. First of all, we're going to talk about the two offices that are mentioned here in this organization called the house of God. Now, we're, we're a local house of God, if you want to put it that way. But the house of God is really saved people, made up of saved people from Pentecost to the rapture those that's gone on to be with the lord and those of us that are still here that is what we're talking about but we're talking about this local church it has an organization and we're going to notice that there's two offices in 1st Timothy chapter number 3 that are mentioned with this organization and there's two offices and two offices only there's not three offices there's not four offices or five offices now far as far as the business side of church goes we have offices right we've got trustees and we've got things like that we've got you know secretary and treasurer and we've got those types of things. But there are two biblical offices in the Bible, and he mentions them here in First Timothy chapter number 3, and the first one is the office of a bishop. The first one is the office of a bishop. Now, other terms for this office would be an elder. It would be presbytery, or another term would be pastor, and that's what, you know, that's what I use. I use the term pastor, and so we are pastors. It's the office of a pastor, and notice what verse 1 says. It says, this is a true saying, chapter 3 verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Now, one of the things that, that I used to believe that is pastoring a church was that, you, you know, that it was strictly a calling. But the more that I've studied the Bible and learned the Bible, I'm starting to see that, well, maybe there is a calling. Maybe God calls a man to a certain church or a specific ministry, but I believe the Bible also teaches there's a desire there as well. Notice it says that he desireth a good, if he desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. So there also comes into play a desire. Maybe if the man no longer has a desire to pastor a church, maybe he shouldn't be pastoring a church. If he no longer has a desire to get up week in and week out, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, and he no longer has a desire to try to help God's people with God's word, then maybe he ought to go off and do something else. Because the Bible says if a man desire the office of a bishop. So notice there's a desire that's involved in this thing. Now this is where the modern crowd comes in here in today where you and I live and they'll say, well, you Baptists. And I know what Romans 16 and verse number 1 says. Let me run over and read it so you're not wondering what it says. But in Romans chapter number 16 and verse number 1 Um, I know what it says. I can't quote it, but I know what it says. Uh, Romans chapter 16, verse number one, it says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at centra. All right, so you've got Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant. And what that... what. I want to be careful how I say this. I don't want to offend. I'm not out to try to offend this morning. But what what some folks will do is they'll change that servant and make it out to be deacon or deaconess is what they do and they'll run to other translations to teach that thing. But listen, just because America has gotten to the place where we've evolved now into what we are today with women's lib and women's right and all that stuff still doesn't trump the Word of God and what God's Word has to say about this thing. Now that's one of the problems with spoiled Americans. They think every Everything should be catered to their beliefs. And so when they come to the Bible, they're willing to change the Bible, to twist the Bible, to fit this modern culture and this modern crowd today. But the Bible is set in stone. The Bible doesn't change for America's beliefs. The Bible was was written long before America ever came along. Uh, years ago, there was a politician that referred to a group of conservatives as uh, living in the Stone Ages. And uh, they, they, you know, you might—I've heard them say this before. They'll, they'll come, they'll say we're flat earthers. I don't—I believe the Earth's round. That's that's my belief. But nonetheless, you know, they'll refer to them as flat earthers and that type of thing. And uh, what they're saying is that we generally don't, uh, you know, we generally don't progress as fast as the as the liberals do. And so therefore, what they do is they come along and they say, well, the women's rights has empowered women in the workplace, and so now anything that a man can do, a woman can do. Now, okay, well, maybe that's true for the most part. Maybe that's true. But when it comes to the Bible, is that true? Or is that what God says? You see, we're not interested in what, a, what, what God means. We're interested in what God says. Does that make sense? What God says trumps what God means because you can change what God means with what you, whatever you want, but you can't change what God says. And the Bible said in verse number one, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. Uh, can I say that back in the Civil War, when the women went into the workplace there because they had to keep the country going while the women were fighting at war, I mean, just to keep the country going, I mean, it, so they had done what they had to do. But you know what? I believe America's paying a heavy price for it. Now don't, before you jump to conclusions, I'm not saying that women can't go into the workplace and women can't work. That's not my belief whatsoever. I believe women can work. I believe there's nothing wrong with a woman working. Listen, if you're a preacher or you're a pastor, don't let other preachers try to tell you that it's wrong for your wife to work. Because it's not wrong. You know what they'll do is they'll go over there to where Paul was talking to Titus. And where Paul told Titus, he said that the women are to be keepers of the home. And they'll twist that thing and they'll say, you see there, women are, you know, but it doesn't say to keep her at home. It says she's to be keeper of the home. You see, there's a difference. So she can go to work, but she's also to be the keeper of the home. And so, you know, you got to be careful not to twist the Bible to fit your narrative and things like that. Women are used greatly of God for that matter. But I believe that somewhere along the way, when women went into the workplace, they didn't come out of the workplace. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to be career moms more than they want to be a mom. So they shove the kids in the daycare and that kind of thing and all that. And and I get it. We live in the day where it seems like it takes two paychecks to make the thing work and go and all of that. But, But nonetheless, I believe you'll agree with me that there's been some damage done because of that. There's nothing wrong with a woman working as long as she doesn't change the way God set the thing up to be. In Genesis chapter number 3 and verse number 16, her desire is to be to her husband. Her husband is to rule over her, according to that passage, and then her desire is to her children. And once the workplace takes that desire away, then that thing becomes wrong. So I don't care how much society changes, I don't care how many laws Congress passes, I don't care what the king president, whoever's at president at the time, with his phone and his pen or whatever it might be, tries to change this thing, God is still right and man is still wrong. Okay, so that was, well, I counted like three or four amens right there. So I still am in a Bible believing church this morning, right? Amen. I just want to make sure that I'm still there. As sure as you are sitting there, that Bible right there says if a man desire the office of a bishop. It didn't say a woman. It didn't say anybody. It said a man. And you can change it. You can finagle it any way you want to. But God at the end of the day still says that a man holds that office. I believe that a man holds the ordained office of a bishop, of a pastor. I don't believe a woman holds it. I believe a man holds that office. You might be able to try to change the word of God down here but God does not change his word up in heaven Psalm 119 verse 89 said forever oh Lord thy word is forever settled in heaven and I believe the word of God is set and you and I can't change it God wrote that book and he didn't mean for man to change it he didn't mean for man to progress to a certain point and now that society has come along along this far that we can just change it I don't believe that I believe the Bible is the Bible of then and it's still the Bible of today now if you want to change the Bible from if a a man to anyone, then you have at it. But I wouldn't want to be on your shoes in this side of eternity or on the other side of eternity for that matter when it comes to changing God's Word. Revelation 22 verse 18 and 19. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 17, he said, for we are not as many which corrupt the Word of God. You know, the Bible correctors, what they're doing is they're corrupting the Word of God. Uh, You know, the, the scholars and Most of the scholars, they're just corrupting the Word of God. Why? Because they're changing it. We believe that the King James Bible is the Word of God, and we make no apologies for that. And we stand on that. Well, the Bible said, if a man desire the office of a bishop, I don't care if she gets up in a nice, you know, modest dress and she's in her high heels with her lipstick on. I don't care if she can get up and say, well, our address is 1865. Hi. Good ones, Chapel Road. Hi. Uh, Princeton, West Virginia. High. 2 4. You know, I don't care if she can hack and all that stuff. It's not Bible. The Bible said, If a man desire the office of a bishop. Now that's the word of God this morning. Now you'll have to reconcile with God on that. But I'm not going to change that. I'm going to stand on that until the world's on fire. That's where I'm going to stand. As I said Sunday night, if it hair lips the devil, I'm going to stand on it. If you want to corrupt the Word of God, have at it, but not me. Judgment awaits those that pervert and change the Word of God. Mark chapter 23 and verse 14. Mark chapter 12 and verse 40. Luke chapter 20 and verse 47. There's degrees to hell. I believe that. He talks about hell and he talks about the lowest of hell. And he talks about damnation and he talks about greater damnation. There's some people that is going to suffer damnation but there's going to be some that are going to suffer greater damnation. There's going to be those that are going to suffer hell, and then there's going to be those that are going to suffer the lowest of hell. And so I'm not going to be one of those that's going to be tagged with changing God's Word. I wouldn't want to be in an unsaved man Bible corrector's shoes for any amount of money at all. Now listen, the Bible said, if a man, someone says, well, preacher, you'll stand in judgment of God. Don't you know, sister so and so got up and preached and ten people got saved? Yeah, but you know what God's doing? God's honoring His word. That's what He's doing. He's honoring His word. That if, you know, if the word is preached, it'll not return void. It's not because of the person that's doing it. It's because of his word that they get saved. I know this ain't popular. Listen, I don't even, you know, I don't even feel like it is popular. I kind of feel a little resistance this morning. That's why when you come to church and you sit there, you ought to amen your preacher a little bit, try to break the ice, and so that way it's not so sticky and stuffy in here. You know? But someone says, Well, you'll stand before God at the judgment for that. Well, you can go ahead and try to silence me with the judgment of God. That's what that crowd does. They'll say, hey, You better not judge. You better not judge. And all they want to do is shut you up by speaking against their sin and their wrongdoing. That's what that all that's about. And Listen, that's not going to shut me up. I'm still going to get up. I'm still going to preach the word of God and I'm still going to make it plain that the Bible said that if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth the good work. It didn't say if a woman desire the office of a bishop, she desireth the good work. God will never go against his word. Now that's what I believe about a bishop there when it comes to that. Now consequently, I believe the same thing when it comes to the second office, which is the office of a deacon. In verse number 8 the Bible says likewise must the deacons. And then he says down in verse number oh verse number 10 it says and let these also first be proved and let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. And then oh it's mentioned one other place down through there somewhere I'm okay verse 13 for they that have used the office of a deacon. So there's two offices in the Bible. There's the office of a bishop and there's the office of a deacon. And there's only two offices in the Bible. There's not three, there's not four, there's only two. And this office is only held by a man. You say, we got sister so-and-so, it's a good deacon. Well, that's not biblical. Where in the Bible is that biblical? It's not there. There's no women deacon there in the Bible whatsoever. Now, I understand, we'll get there in just a second, and I'll explain a passage to you that they use in order to justify that. That's that Romans 16 in verse number 1. It said talking about Phoebe, you know, and she is said to, they say, "Well, she said to hold the office of a deacon." It didn't say that. You twisted it in your mind to say that. It said she was a servant of the church. And they say, well, but if you go back to the Greek, the, the Greek says "diaconus," And diaconus is translated into the English as deacon. And therefore, you can have women deacons. You're, like I said, you're smoking crack. This is the problem. This is what they do. It's look at the birdie. Don't look at my hand over here. It's the sleight of hand thing. It's running to the Greek to try to fool you about something the English didn't say to prove what they believe because they can't use the English to prove it. So they run back to the Greek and the Hebrew to try to prove it. Now you and I, we don't, I, I look around, I don't, maybe you do. Maybe you know Hebrew. Maybe you know Greek. I don't. I can look it up. I can get the meanings of it. I can do all of that. But I'm more interested in what the English says. I'm not so concerned about Greek and Hebrew as I am English. And I know what the English says about this thing. And it says a servant of the church. It doesn't say a deaconess of the church. That's strange, isn't it? So we have ladies in our church that I look up to. We have ladies that I look to that take care of things and certain things in the church, and I consider them to be servants in the church and servants of the church, but they do not hold the ordained office of a deacon. That's something totally different. The word deacon comes from deek. Deek means to serve, so we're all servants in that case. We're all deacons in that point, but not everybody holds the office of a deacon. The office of a deacon is held by a man, male, M-A-L-E. That's how that's held. Y'all make a play nowadays. We live in a day where man thinks he's a woman and woman thinks he's a man. So, yeah. you wouldn't think you'd have to preach this stuff, would you? But you do. In the day you and I are in, you do. But I know they twist the scriptures to say a woman can be a deacon. But you twist the scriptures when you do that. I challenge you. Take the Bible and show me now. Before you get mad at me and you walk out here snorting, hollering, screaming, and well, I'll never come back and all that. Check it out with the book. Don't get mad at me. I did not write the book. I'm not the fourth part of the Trinity. Well, that didn't make sense, does it? I'm not the fourth part of Godhead. You know, I didn't write the book. I just preached the book. I'm just teaching the book. And so you got to be careful when it comes back to going to the Greek to try to prove that it says something that the English never said. Again, I, you know, if I wanted to trick people and fool people, that's what I do. I'd go back to the Greek and the Hebrew and try to do that. I'm not trying to demonize Greek and Hebrew or anything like that. God used that at that particular time. But the language, the industrialized language for today is English. Every major industrialized country uses the English language to do business. And God knew that in 1611 when he translated the King James Bible into English from the Greek. you you get in a mess when you start using the Greek to change the English. So those that use this passage here about Phoebe to teach that a a woman can be a deacon will also use that same passage to say, well, if a woman can be a deacon, she can also be a pastor. And that's how they wiggle around that thing. But is that what the Bible says? I'm not as interested in what the Bible means as much as I am as what the Bible says. So there's two offices. I gotta hurry. Number two, this organization's officers have obligations. Notice in chapter number three, some of them, they'll call them qualifications or they'll call them requirements. Now, we come to the first office there and we notice it's a bishop. Notice number one, we've established it very well that he's to be a male, to be a man. God created male and female from the beginning. He created them, right? So he created a male and female. So whatever birthday suit you had when you come into this world is the birthday suit you'll have to the day you go out of here. I don't care if you try to change it or whatnot. You, it's the same one. I kind of cleaned it up pretty good, didn't I? It's, that'll work. That'll work for church. But, uh, but notice in verse number two, he's to be without blame while holding the office. Notice verse two says, a bishop then must be blameless. Not must have always been. See, you're reading that into the text if you say that. It says he must be. So at the in verse number one, if he desires that office, then when he takes that office, he must be at that point. See, you know, because if, if you say must have always been blameless, nobody would ever fit the bill. I wouldn't fit the bill. Halftime, I feel like I don't even fit the bill anyway. So you've got here, you've got that he must be blameless. Not always have been blameless, but he must be blameless without blame. In other words, it's somebody makes an accusation that can't stick. You know, that's what that is, because if every time somebody, anybody can make an accusation, and if he was disqualified based upon that, then nobody would be disqualified, or be qualified, because then everybody would get disqualified by the accusation. So it has to be something that could stick, an accusation that can stick. Now, he's to be the husband of one wife. Look at verse number two. It says, a bishop then must be the husband of one wife. Now, let me throw you for a little loop from what you've been taught. Now, do you find anywhere in that passage where it says, Divorce and remarriage. Then why, when I come to the passage, would I put divorce and remarriage in the passage? That's somebody adding something with a preconceived notion. It says the husband of one wife. I believe that right there means polygamy. It means the husband of one wife, not the husband of two wives, not the husband of three wives. Now listen, I fit the bill no matter how you look at it. I have one wife. I've only known one woman for my entire life. Hopefully I'll go out of here and that's all I've ever had is one wife. I fit the bill no matter how you look at it. But that's talking about polygamy. There is no divorce or remarriage in the passage. And for me to imply that would be to change the word of God. He's talking about the husband of one wife, not two wives. In other words, a Mormon is not qualified to be a deacon. I mean a pastor. Is that right? That makes sense. He says the husband of one wife. You see, we've been programmed and taught another way to read divorce and remarriage in the passage. But it doesn't say that. Why would I put that in there unless I've already got my mind made up? See that? Now, I've had people to tell me, well, why would Paul be writing about polygamy when it wasn't an issue of his day? And my response is, is how do you know it wasn't an issue in Paul's day? Isn't that funny? People, they they try to make these arguments, but then they come down to the end of it and they can't hold the argument up. Prove to me that it wasn't an issue in Paul's day. And let me give you another one. God wrote this passage here in AD 65. But I believe that God not only wrote it for those in 8065, I believe he wrote the Bible for those in 2023, don't you? So it wasn't written for just them. So I'm not going to try to go back in the first first century Christian's mindset and try to figure out what he believed and try to base our belief on first century Christianity. I'm going to base it on the Word of God today. That's what I'm basing it upon. You see, so you can get into a mess when you start twisting the Word of God like that. And so he says, the husband of one wife, not two wives, not three wives, but one wife. And uh, I've been in churches before, you've probably heard this before. And they'll quote 1 Timothy chapter 3 in verse number 2, and they'll say this. Now listen to this carefully. They'll say this. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one living wife. How many have heard preachers quote it that way before? The husband of one living wife. You see, you're inserting something in the passage that's not there. You've inserted living wife so that you can change the meaning of what God says. The meaning of that passage, done deals, for it's settled. He's to be the husband of one wife and that's it. The husband of one wife. So it's not that hard of a text to figure out. But we make it more complicated than what it really is. Now, he says in the passage there, he says in verse number 2, that he's not only to be blameless, he's not only to be the husband of one wife, but he is to be vigilant. That means he's to be watchful. That means he's to walk circumspectly. That means what the pastor will do is he'll walk with like a circle around him, circumference, circumspectly. And he'll walk knowing his surroundings because he, at any moment, the devil and his devices could enter into that circle. And if he's not careful, he could be caught into the trap and the snare of the devil. So he's to be vigilant. And he's also said to be sober. He's to be sober-minded and to be sober in the sense of even alcohol and drugs and things like that. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11 said, But now I've written unto you not to keep company, if any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or an adulterer or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner with such an one no not eat. The Bible said in Proverbs 20, in verse number one, wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. You see, the Bible teaches against a bishop not being sober. He must be sober. And also, he's to have good behavior. If you'll allow me, I'm going for sake of time, I'm just going to plow right down through here and give you these here. I think it's important to do this. But he's to be hospitable in verse number two. So he's to be like a... Hospital, right? That's where you get the word hospital from. And so he's to be hospitable. He's to be kind. He's to be helpful. Well, what do you do in a hospital? Well, you, you, you help the wounded, right? And that's what church can be. A church can be a place where you come in and you can get help and you help the wounded. Also in verse number two, he's to be apt to teach. So he's to be ready to teach. He's to be prepared to teach. I remember years ago, uh, a fella called me up and he wanted me to, he was going to be out of town, I think it was, and he wanted me to fill in for him on a Sunday uh, that morning and that night. And so I got there, and when I got there, I mean, the church, Sunday school, for Sunday school, I mean, the church was packed. And uh, I don't know, there's probably, I don't know, 250, 300 people there. And so when I got there, you know, the guys were talking like, well, uh, who's teaching Sunday school? Nobody knew who was going to teach Sunday school. Now, I just came with my outlines to preach. I, you know, he asked me to preach. He didn't ask me to teach. But the fellows looked at me and they said, well, Brother So-and-so always asks this person or that person to teach, but he didn't this time for some reason. So they looked at me and said, will you teach? I didn't have anything, but you know, I got a Bible. <laughs> I said, sure, I'll be willing to do it. And so I opened up the Bible to 1 Corinthians and for 45 minutes we talked. You know, so you can make it happen. You can. You're apt to teach as a pastor, as a, as a as someone that holds the office of a bishop. You're to be apt to teach, and the Bible tells us to be instant in season and out of season. And I've often taught our preachers in our church down through the years that you be prepared because you never know at the last minute when you might be called upon to preach. Uh, it might be that I might one morning wake up and I'm sick, and I might call you up and say, "I need you to preach." And, you know, you're going to be scampering around because you're not prepared, you know, to preach. I'm not going to point anybody out. Where's the, oh, he's not in here right now, is he? But anyway, I was going to pick on him. But, but you may be called, you may go somewhere to a revival. And this happened here not long ago. And they may call you up from the floor. And uh, you better have a sermon outline tucked in your Bible ready to go uh, because you're going to kind of look foolish there sitting there trying to figure out if you really want to get up and preach or not when you hesitate. You see, we ought to desire to preach so much to the point that we're ready to jump at the opportunity. I'm saying sometimes God puts us in situations where we must be apt to teach. A pastor must be apt to teach. And then, of course, we've already talked about in verse number three, is not to be drunk. It says not given to wine. So he's not to be a drunk. He's not to be given to wine. You know, in the Bible days, they used wine as a method of uh, medicinal purposes. And so then, you know, when you remove wine completely, you remove his option to be able to, to use that for medicinal purposes. So he's not to be given to much wine or he's not to be given over to wine. Um, in verse number, so verse three is not to be a drunk. In verse 4, he says, One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And so he's talking about in relation to his home and the church. If a man can't run his home, how can he run the church? Right? And so he talks about his children are to be uh, in subjection with all gravity. Well, What's gravity? Gravity keeps you down to earth. So his children ought to be down to earth is what he's talking about. And so if a man don't know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Again, the church of God is not the building, but its people. He's not to be a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. And so he's not to be a novice, he's not to be somebody that just got saved. You take somebody that just got saved and they just surrendered to the call to preach right after they got saved and then you put them in the office of a bishop as being a pastor, then pride can get to him. I mean, how many times have you heard preachers get lifted up with pride and and fall into the condemnation of the devil? And so he's got to be careful about that. He walks circumspectly. And so if he doesn't, then he could be caught into the snare of the devil. Now we're talking about in the house of God. There's two offices. There's the bishop and then there's the deacon. And there's orders to these things. Because the church is not only an organism, but it's also an organization. And there's got to be order to it. And so God, I believe, is laying this thing out for you and me so that we can see there's order to it and that, there's, that we submit to certain things and, 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 and things like that. And so God has laid that thing out. Now, I don't know what we'll do tonight, but, but you just come back and we'll be prepared to continue on with this thing here and we'll talk about the deacons tonight. So now our, our deacons won't show up tonight, will you? <laughs> I showed up, so it's your turn to show up now. <laughs> but anyhow, we'll stop right there.